Welcome to Rising. I'm Jessica Burbank, and I get to be back at the Rising desk with Amber Athey for a very special Friday show. I haven't been uh, beamed up by the aliens yet, which is good because it means I get to be here with you. Yeah, exactly. You? I think we're all grateful that you have not been beamed up yet. Everyone except for me. <laughs> well, Jessica, former President Trump has been charged with three additional charges related to his mishandling of classified documents. Prosecutors accused Trump of conspiring to delete security footage from Mar-a-Lago property. Now, a second Mar-a-Lago employee has also been charged. They apparently told another staffer at the complex that, quote, the boss wanted the server deleted. Trump was also hit with another Espionage Act charge. Prosecutor Jack Smith says the former president retained a second classified document detailing U.S. military plans to attack Iran and showed it to at least four other people in July of 2021. Trump, of course, hit out against the new charges, telling Fox News last night that the allegations are, quote, ridiculous, as well as election interference at the highest level. Writer Michael Tracy questioned the strength of Smith's case, tweeting, Can someone explain how it safeguards national security to indict the Mar-a-Lago maintenance guy? Of course, for the voluntary interview he gave those friendly F or he gave to those friendly FBI agents when the initial indictment was handed down on Trump for alleged Espionage Act violations. The immediate expert consensus was that the case was a slam dunk, that prosecutors had Trump dead to rights six weeks later. They've resorted to ensnaring Carlos, the maintenance guy. So that I think it's funny to talk about the Mar-a-Lago maintenance guy like this. Uh, more charges coming out against Trump is shocking. He is facing charges in Florida, in New York. Uh, looks like something's going to come out of Fulton County very soon. And also D.C. He's got his hands full. Yeah, it's a, a lot of work for him, clearly, and his legal team. And he is uh, apparently trifling through lawyers like nobody's business. Yes. But this uh, this whole s scenario about the maintenance guy is very interesting because uh, Carlos, uh, I forget, I can't remember his last name, but uh, his, last, his full name is Carlos the maintenance guy. That's Carlo, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carlos the maintenance guy. So he actually went into the FBI for a quote unquote voluntary interview, which is a great reminder that the FBI is never your friend. Yes. And you should never voluntarily speak to them ever, especially without a lawyer present. Mm -hmm. And um, he did exactly that. And now they're accusing him of giving false statements during this interview process, um, which it looks to me like an attempt to get him to flip, right? They're trying to put pressure on this guy to see if he will say negative things about Trump and, and say that they were conspiring together to illegally destroy these surveillance tapes or some of the documents. Um, this is a classic thing that the FBI does. They did this, this to several members of the Trump campaign back when they were doing Crossfire Hurricane, the investigation into alleged Russian collusion. So the question now is, will Carlos, the maintenance guy, indeed flip on Trump and help strengthen the prosecution's case. I think Michael Tracy has a decent point in that if this were such damning evidence, if this was such a slam dunk case, why did we need six weeks between the initial indictment in order to add these new charges, this new information, all of these cell phone records they've collected with text messages between the various employees? It just looks to me like another example of the DOJ and the FBI not having their ducks in a row and being more interested in getting somebody than actually building a legitimate good case. Yeah, they're lucky that the guy they're after is Donald Trump, because it seems to me that if this was a scenario like it was in all 
of the other cases with Mike Pence and Joe Biden, where you have someone leaving public office and retaining classified documents and information in their possession. Uh, they were just told by, you know, the FBI or folks uh, with the national—not National Security Archives, but the people who manage the documents yeah. in D.C. Like, oh, some of these, you know, are missing. It's, it's possible that they're in your possession. And they're like, oh, OK, like, my bad. Here you go. Donald Trump, on the other hand, starts deleting security footage at Mar-a-Lago, says, you know, I'm not going to give the documents back. Everybody else does this. So it seems more likely in this case, rather than getting him on illegally re retaining classified information, uh, the obstruction of justice charge seems to be the one that would make more sense to get him on, because so many people are like, this is political prosecution, so many other people retain classified information. I think what makes this situation more egregious is that he tried to retain the documents and he tried to hide evidence that he had the documents by deleting the security footage and saying, you know, I don't have them, I'm not going to turn them over. Yeah, we'll have to see how they can prove that he was uh, specifically involved in this alleged deletion of the security footage. Apparently, the claim is that Carlos actually flooded the pool intentionally to destroy the room where the servers were and where these security cameras were. Um, that seems like it would be a difficult thing to prove in court that he intentionally flooded the pool. So we'll see how that happens. On the retention point, I think the best comparison is not even between Trump and Biden and Trump or, or Trump and Pence. It's actually between Trump and Obama, because mm. Obama also had taken classified documents when he left office, um, even actually while he was still president, and had them uh, rented in a private—or in a rented private facility called the Hoffman Estates. And when the National Archives discovered that Obama had these documents, they didn't try to negotiate getting them all back. Instead, what they did is they actually worked out this deal where Obama was able to keep the documents at the Hoffman Estates. But the National Archives technically had ownership of them and had stewardship of them. So Obama still had possession of them, still had access to them, um, but NARA was technically in charge. And so to me, it seems like the, the correct analogy here would be that NARA and Trump were going through this negotiation of how he could properly secure the documents, of which ones he needed to return and which ones they were allowed to keep. And that was the process that was taking place before that Mar-a-Lago raid by the DOJ. And yet, the difference here is that Trump is now being indicted for retaining the documents, whereas Obama was allowed to keep them. So why was NARA so insistent? that Trump wasn't allowed to have any of these in his possession when the previous standard would suggest otherwise. Yeah, I think the, the main difference between Trump's case and that case is just that Trump so egregiously was like posting on Truth Social, like, yeah, it's no big deal that I have the documents. Basically, it's so many admissions of guilt, one after the next, for the crimes that he's facing. It makes our justice system look like an absolute joke, because here you have this guy who not only admitted to, you know, manipulating the situation where... Uh, you know, he has this case in New York with, with Stormy Daniels, hush money uh, to Stormy Daniels, and he basically admits everything that happened. Now we have to prove it in a court of law, something that he's admitted publicly. And when you have a good, pricey lawyer, you can make it so that statements like that are not admitted as evidence when they're a clear admission of guilt. And it makes our justice system look like a joke when you can't find someone guilty for a crime that they've admitted in public that they've 
committed. Same thing with the documents, him saying he's not going to give them back, him saying in text messages, you know, that he has the documents, like, and he knows that he didn't declassify them while he was in office. I think it's just that he so clearly made it obvious that he's guilty. And I think the analogy fits that it's like, if you're stealing something and you're caught stealing and you have this thing you're not supposed to have and someone says, hey, like, can you give that back? You, we know you stole that. And you say, okay, I'm going to figure out, like, which things that I took that I didn't pay for and here you go and give them back. Donald Trump was basically like, yeah, I have them and it's fine that I have them and then runs off with them. And he had so many more documents. That photo of the bathroom is so damning. I'm sure they asked Carlos, the maintenance guy, like, what was the deal with that bathroom in Mar-a-Lago that just had so many boxes of files in it? I think the Trump case is a bit different in how he treated it after people knew he had classified documents and just the sheer amount of classified documents that he had. I think the question, though, is does it matter how he tweeted about it or how he reacted to it if there isn't an underlying crime, right? Like, you can't get him on obstruction of justice or some of these other process-type crimes unless there was a crime that he was attempting to cover up. So they still would have to prove that he was illegally retaining these mm -hmm. documents, that he wasn't allowed to have them, mm -hmm. and that he was fundamentally different than every other person who's left office who has taken the documents. And I think the problem with the Biden comparison as well is that Biden had these documents for decades. The idea that he didn't know he had them or didn't know he wasn't supposed to when he didn't even have declassification authority um, and then somehow only discovered them at the exact time the DOJ decided to start looking into Trump's retention of documents. Then all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, by the way, they're at the Penn Biden Center and the DOJ has to go raid his residencies in Delaware. Uh, that doesn't scream cooperation to me. That screams CYA. Yeah, I think I think you make a good point that perhaps we should have had persecution for this or prosecution for this everywhere it's happened. And then people would think that this is more legitimate. Yeah, and there should be a clear standard. That's all. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm for that. Let's get rid of corruption in the country. Let's hold everyone <laughs> in power accountable who does bad things. More rising after this. The 2024 Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s appeal is plummeting among Democratic voters and rising with Republicans. This is according to a recent Morning Consult poll. RFK Jr. enjoyed a 46 and 42 percent approval rating among Democratic and Republican voters, respectively, when he jumped into the race back in April. But currently, he's taking a nosedive among Democrats, 41 percent of whom reported disapproving of him. But his favorability climbed to a whopping 50 percent among GOP respondents. Not all Republican voters are convinced, though. Former White House deputy chief and the Bush administration, Karl Rove, tore down RFK Jr. during an appearance on Fox News yesterday. Let's watch. He's got lots of conspiracies. 2004 election was stolen as computers switched nearly a quarter of a million votes in Ohio from John Kerry to George Bush and thereby gave him the election. 5G is a mass surveillance tool and the telecoms, the telephone companies are in on it. CIA killed his uncle. Sirhan Sirhan didn't kill his father. And he defends Russia and Ukraine. It's all Ukraine's fault that Russia invaded him and is killing his people. I mean, well, this guy's hey, a hey, nut. Carl, uh, despite all that, you know, he's attracting 20% on a lot of polling. So I mean, his message on, on some of these issues are getting through, or at least cutting no, through no, for some in the I, electorate. Well, you dismiss I, I, that? I disagree. I, yeah, I think two things. One is his last name is Kennedy. 
and he's Robert Kennedy Jr. And second of all, Joe Biden is an incredibly weak candidate. I don't think people are supporting him because of these conspiracy theories. I think they're supporting him because of his name and because they want an alternative to well, Joe Biden. In that same interview, Rove blasted GOP candidate Ron DeSantis for suggesting he would consider taking RFK Jr. to spearhead the CDC or the FDA, citing Kennedy's history promoting anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. So, to me, I think Karl Rove, with the whiteboard, with a list of the conspiracy theories, makes him seem like more of a crazy guy than someone <laughs> saying the things that he put on that whiteboard. It's giving it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> but um, one of the the conspiracy theories on that list that caught my eye yeah. is CIA killed his uncle. Right. I would think that out of pretty much anybody in the world right now, RFK Jr. probably has the best handle on what happened to his own family members. Mm -hmm. And that is not some like outrageous conspiracy theory that nobody believes. I mean, even back in the 70s investigation of this, a House report found credible evidence that there were probably two gunmen who fired at the president, that there was probably a conspiracy, although they didn't determine what exactly it was. RFK Jr. has spoken about the fact that the military complex wanted JFK to get involved in certain wars that he wasn't interested in, particularly in Vietnam. So putting that on the whiteboard next to everything else he was citing, as well as um, his his uh, the things that he said about his own father's death, RFK's death, like, what is, how is Carl Rove more qualified than RFK Jr. to say anything about the truth behind the deaths of these two men? Yeah, I think it's a good point. A lot of the other stuff on that whiteboard, taken entirely out of context, yeah. the 5G thing, a lot of people like to call, you know, RFK Jr. an anti-vaccine guy, and he's clarified these things so many times. What he means when he says things about the vaccine, what he means when he says things about COVID. The 5G thing, I don't even think I've seen a clip of RFK Jr. talking about 5G. I think if he was a 5G conspiracy theorist, we would have more clips of that. Uh, but he could be right. Karl Rove could be right that there's some hot takes about 5G out there. But I think at the end of the day, when you have a candidate like RFK Jr., who's talking about issues with more substance than a lot of the candidates, who are speaking in platitudes, who are promising things that really have nothing to do with policies they could pass once they're in public office office, uh, I think it makes RFK Jr. have this unique space in the political field where it's like there's so much to attack him on, and the media very clearly wants to attack him because he's an anti-establishment candidate. Let's be very clear about that. The falling in the polls among Democrats and the rising in the polls among, you know, Republicans is interesting to me for someone like RFK Jr. I think the media can take some credit for yes, that, if I'm being honest. 100%. And all of their criticism of him is not entirely true. That's a dangerous place for American democracy. Yeah, I think the media is definitely to blame for this falling among Democrats, especially members of the Democratic establishment, are more likely to trust mainstream media. Republicans, particularly base Republicans, are more likely to reflexively oppose anything the media says is bad. So you've seen over the past few weeks, especially after his appearance at that uh, congressional committee about censorship, where he um, defended some of the comments that he had made regarding COVID-19, the media took everything he said out of context. They deliberately accused him of of contradicting himself multiple times. I mean, we talked on this show about Dana Bash's segment on CNN mm -hmm. where she accused him of lying. That's the kind of thing that unfortunately does move certain members of the Democratic Party. Now, on the Karl Rove question, 
as much as I despise Carl Rove for many things, he is a strategic guy. And so him going on there and having this whiteboard and talking about these issues, I think there's one of two things that he's trying to do. He's either trying to stave off GOP support for RFK Jr., which seems kind of unlikely, because we know that Carl Rove does not speak for the Republican base. He speaks to donors. And the donor class is obviously not supporting RFK Jr. Mm -hmm. So I think the more likely explanation is that Carl Rove knows that he's hated by Democrats. And so by him attacking RFK Jr., maybe he could sort of gin up that internal strife in the Democratic Party, convince some of those people who have been turned off by CNN and MSNBC to, again, back RFK Jr. and find him uh, with a higher approval rating. At least that's my best guess. It can't be overstated that Karl Rove is a strategic guy. At the age of 22, he was writing full strategies for the Republicans in the primaries and sending the memo to someone close to Richard Nixon. At 22, he was writing a primary strategy for a political party. This is a guy who's very calculated, and I don't know if he's as calculated as he used to be, because then maybe he wouldn't be on you know, the television with a whiteboard of conspiracy theories listed. <laughs> but I will say that it's obvious what his intention is, and it's to slander this guy who's an anti-establishment candidate. Obviously, Karl Rove has been uh, in bed with the establishment since 22, since yes. the, his genesis of his political career. That is shocking, just as a decision from a human perspective, but from a political perspective to, you know, denounce Ron DeSantis and frame RFK Jr. as a raging conspiracy theorist, but not say a word about Donald Trump's conspiracies in the same sentence at all. He's someone who has thrown out conspiracies before. He's a funny guy. He doesn't mean everything he says, but he said some ridiculous things, perhaps more ridiculous than RFK Jr. So it's clear to me that the Republicans haven't dismissed Donald Trump winning the primary nomination and the presidency again. It's clear that Karl Rove is going on television and bashing DeSantis and bashing RFK Jr. in favor of, it seems, Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Karl Rove is still a party guy, right? He's yeah. going to support whoever the nominee is. And right now, all of the polls suggest that Trump is going to be the nominee. There's a new poll that just came out with Ohio primary numbers. Trump is leading by something like 50 percentage points uh, ahead of actually in second place, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, but it's 100 percent correct. Karl Rove does not like anti-establishment candidates. If he had his pick of the litter, he would not be choosing Donald Trump or RFK Jr. or any of these guys. He is a neocon. He was deeply involved in the decision to get involved in the Iraq war and, and weapons of mass destruction. And recently, he was apparently calling up Republican donors, urging them to pull support away from J.D. Vance's Senate campaign in Ohio. J.D. Vance has spoken about that pretty openly. Mm -hmm. um, Tucker Carlson has done a number of great segments talking about Karl Rove's support for establishment candidates that tow a certain party line against more populist candidates. So it's not surprising to me that he would be going on TV bashing RFK Jr. And I think we just have to sort of suss out what is the underlying agenda as well. We know that he doesn't like anti-establishment candidates. What angle is he taking here in order to make sure that the Republican Party ultimately is successful, right? Is it more of a Democratic discord campaign, or is it trying to convince Republican voters that RFK bad don't support him? Yeah, it seems to me that the media, by bashing RFK Jr., bashing DeSantis, not a terribly huge fan of Trump, but really pushing out people like uh, Marion Williamson and RFK Jr., candidates that would pose a pretty substantive third-party challenge. Plus, seeing how someone like RFK Jr. is growing in the polls among Republicans suggests that 
if he doesn't get on the ballot for the primary election, which we see Progressive Turnout Project pushing so that he is not on the primary ballot with Democrats, you're creating the conditions for him to run as a third party candidate, which would be probably worse for the establishment than even if he won the Democratic nomination. Yeah, and there's also sort of a 50-50 shot on whether or not RFK Jr. running as a third party candidate would hurt Republicans or Democrats more. Because yes, he has a higher approval rating with Republicans right now, but we've also seen in prior polls that Democrats Democrats are more apt to vote third party as opposed to supporting Biden. So I think it's kind of a wash as to which party he would ultimately be a spoiler for. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have to leave that there, but we've got more rising just after this. Oversight Subcommittee held a hearing on UAPs, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, this week and heard testimony about object sightings and government possession of non-human material. One notable moment from the hearing was when whistleblower David Grush said the United States government is absolutely in possession of UAPs. Mr. Grush, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the inspector general. Grush also answered to the government finding non-human biologics along with crashed craft. Let's watch. If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human. Investigative journalist and author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Leslie Kane joins us now to discuss. Thanks for being with us, Leslie. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of, of that claim by Grush there of the non-human biologics? Well, I mean, that is the most, uh, probably the most explosive statement that was made in the whole hearing in terms of uh, just trying to wrap your mind around something that hard to imagine that there's actually the biological material, if not bodies of non-human beings in the possession of the U.S. government. I have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. I have talked to others who have told me that it is true. But I think we are, I think tracking down the crash retrieved objects, uh, we may have a better chance of doing that than we than getting our hands on biological specimens. So David, I, I'm not in a position to know. David Grush also said during his testimony that he has gathered this evidence from 40 people that he's interviewed. Do we have a sense of who, who these individuals are and whether or not how many, or rather, how many of them actually had firsthand knowledge or direct access to the craft or biologics that were recovered? We don't know who the specific individuals were, although there may have been some that have come forward and whether they're part of that pool of 40, we don't really know. For instance, we had a couple of people in our story in the debrief that were supporting David Grush's testimony. But um, most of them, I believe, are not comfortable coming forward publicly because they don't feel safe. They, there's lots of restrictions on what people can do and say. Uh, they don't want to break their security else, or they may be uncomfortable that they might it might threaten their jobs or their careers in some way. Uh, they're, they're afraid of retaliation, which is what happened to David Grush. 
So people are kind of waiting in the wings, I think, to see how things unfold. And then I think more and more will come public in support of him. And we will hear from people who have direct firsthand knowledge of these programs, which Grush didn't have. So it sounds like there is a bit of breaking news today moving out of this about the, the subcommittee coming from McCarthy. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about what you know about the subcommittee? Yes, I did. I just heard from Burchett's office that the, um, the four four members of the committee, of the Appropriations Committee who held, held the hearing, have written a letter to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The four members are, are Mr. Burchett, Matt Gates, Luna, and Jared Moskowitz. Um, and they have asked him for the formation of a select committee to investigate UAP. It would also involve the collection of information and um, it would you know, conduct oversight, the issues around oversight that need to be addressed. And what's really important, I think, about this uh, select committee is that it would have subpoena authority so that this committee would be in a position to subpoena some of the witnesses that we all want to hear from and or documents that maybe could be declassified for the public because they've also focused on the problem of overclassification. They want to release more documents to the public. So it's very exciting development and, and um, I hope that it happens. And I understand you were at this hearing earlier in the week, Leslie. What was the mood like in the room? Did people seem to be taking this seriously? Were people kind of brushing it off or joking about it? Um, and not just among congressional members, but the other people in the audience. How did they seem to react to some of this information that was coming out? Yeah, the mood, Amber, was really just sort of joyful and um you know, everybody on high alert, everybody very excited. There were literally hundreds of people who lined up to cut, to get into this hearing, members of the public who could not get in because there just wasn't space. People started lining up at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, hours and hours and hours, stayed up all night to try to get in. So, and, and you know, the mood, I, I did not get a sense of any uh, disparaging or ridiculing or any kind of uh, attitudes like that. It was very serious and very excited. So we've we've seen a few viral moments that have gotten the most attention online. What happened in the hearing uh, that you would point to that's worthy of attention that's not getting attention? Well, that's a good question because I do think some of the more you know sens sensationalistic aspects of it are getting most of the attention. But there were a lot of other important points that were brought out. One of them, for instance, uh, a need for pilots to report to have a mechanism in which they can feel safe reporting. Ryan Graves mentioned that only 95% of, of it, that 95% that of the pilots who do have sightings don't report them. I mean, that is a huge number. So something needs to be done to address that because there's valuable data to be provided from these pilots, which isn't getting provided because they're afraid that they'll, they'll somehow harm their, you know, harm their jobs or that they'll be ridiculed or, there's still a stigma against this. So that needs to be addressed. There was also a point brought up about satellite imagery. There must be a tremendous amount of satellite imagery. I'm sure some of the uh, the classified briefings have included it. Can some of that be brought up? There's issues around government oversight that need to be addressed. Um, so there's you know a lot, and there needs to be an, basically an investigation to follow up on what uh, David Grush has provided, the specifics. Because he did say that he has provided names, locations, uh, program names, you know, all, all the data that the members need in order to follow up on it, on what he's telling them. So that is a, was a major point that 
An investigation needs to take place to find out if what he's saying is true. Former Navy Commander David Fravor also delivered a blowing account of the speed with which the craft he encountered moved. Let's take a look. The, the technology that we faced was far superior than anything that we had, and you could put that anywhere. If you, if you had one, you captured one, you reverse engineered it, you got it to work, you're talking something that can go into space, go someplace, drop down in a matter of seconds, do whatever it wants, and leave, and there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. Fravor added that the Pentagon never investigated the incident. What do you make of this, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, the incident took place in 2004, and that was before the program was set up by the DIA in 2007 that was to address some of these phenomena, including UFOs. And then the ATIP program carried on inside the Department of Defense. So they did a kind of retroactive investigation of this case back in the early days of the ATIP program. So, um, but it wasn't, you know, at, in those days, these kinds of things were never brought forward. People were afraid to talk about them. And so fortunately, they did do this retroactive investigation. There's a long document that was put together by the investigative team about this case. There were multiple witnesses to it. It's very, very powerful, and there's a lot of data. So um, now I think we're going to see much more open investigation. If an incident like this were to happen today, I think it would be more public from the beginning, and hopefully more data would be shared with the public as the investigation was un undertaken. It's interesting you point to that sort of a, a shift in how freely we share information about UFOs, U UAPs now. Throughout your career, you've you know worked through this shift in sentiments about sharing information about UAPs and UFOs with the public. What would you credit this, this change in how we handle the information to? Well, I think it. I think we. I would credit to, to the whole kind of trajectory that began in 2017 with the New York Times story that I helped write, um, and it kind of opened the doors for this to be allowed to be taken seriously because the story revealed that there was a secret program in the Department of Defense that was studying this, and that led uh, the members of Congress to become interested and to receive all kinds of briefings about this, and so it just kind of built on that and built on that. When you have uh, members of government engaged with this topic, seriously interested in it, talking about it as a national security issue, alluding to the fact that it may not be from our, you know, may not be human, we're dealing with something extraordinary here, that uh, the stigma starts to fade away. You need highly credible authorities to engage with this for that stigma to drop. And so I think that's really what's changed it. Prior to 2017, the government wouldn't even comment on this. They were absolutely unengaged. But that has changed so radically that we're seeing a diminishment in that stigma pretty quickly. What do we know about the involvement of other countries' governments in the exploration of UAPs? Is there cooperation there between the United States and some of their global partners to, to basically investigate whether or not these craft are simply technological explorations by geopolitical enemies versus actually being extra-normal phenomena? Yes. I mean, as far as I know, we we are, our government does cooperate with our allies on this, especially within the group called the Five Eyes. Uh, we, you know, we work with the UK closely, Australia. Um, but of course, we don't know a lot about what our adversaries know. Of course, we're not working with them. And the, the big, uh, the, the questions, uh, you know, the big question is around China and Russia and what kind of technology they may possess 
as a result of any kind of reverse engineering programs they have. So we're always uh, trying to find out more about what they know. But yes, um, I, there is cooperation. I think it's done very privately and quietly between the different countries. But I do know that that it does take place. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us and breaking this down today. Thank you very much for having me. More rising after this. Appearing confused, Senator Dianne Feinstein was directed to, quote, just say I during a Senate Appropriations Committee markup of bills Thursday. The cameras in the room capture the awkward moment. Let's watch. I, I would like to support a yes vote on this. Um, it provides $823 billion. That's an increase of $26 billion for the Department of Defense. And the, it funds priorities submitted. Yeah, just say aye. Okay, just aye. aye. The committee's chair, Senator Patty Murray, nudged her to just cast her vote instead of explaining her decision. Questions have been swirling surrounding the health and fitness of the 90-year-old California senator and whether she should continue in her post. Meanwhile, Google searches for the term gerontocracy, which means oligarchical rule by the elderly, went through the roof after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell seemingly froze during a press conference Wednesday. Currently, our Congress is the oldest in our history. I take issue with the fact that they're discussing the prospect of cutting Social Security when Congress has essentially turned into taxpayer-funded nursing home. <laughs> uh, but we can't have a retirement. I find that absurd and terribly hypocritical. Uh, this is just crazy. I mean, Diane Feinstein, she's the oldest serving senator. She's 90 years old. She's had a slate of health issues over the past couple of years. Um, she was off for about three months after a shingles diagnosis. And they actually hid the extent of her illness from the American people until she had returned to the Senate. It turned out she also had Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which occurred when the shingles spread to her head and neck, and a case of encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. And when asked about this recent moment in the Senate where Dianne Feinstein was basically puppeteered through her eye vote, which should be like kind of illegal, right? Like you shouldn't be able to have someone whisper in your ear what you're supposed to say. We didn't elect that guy. Right. Elected I, I didn't yeah. elect Dianne Feinstein's staffer. Her staff said, Trying to complete all of the appropriation bills before recess, the committee markup this morning was a little chaotic, constantly switching back and forth between statements, votes, and debate and the order of bills. The senator was preoccupied, didn't realize debate had just ended, and a vote was called. She started to give a statement, was informed it was a vote, and then cast her vote. Two issues, obviously, with this statement. First of all, dealing with chaotic situations is sort of your job when you're in the Senate mm -hmm. and being able to shuffle different issues at the same time. And also, this is a pattern from Dianne Feinstein. She didn't know where she was when she got back to the Senate after that shingles uh, incident and has repeatedly given confusing statements to reporters, such as not even knowing that she had announced her retirement. What do you think about this allegation here, gerontocracy, that we have a gerontocracy in the United States? I mean, the United Nations has already said that effectively the way our country works, it is an oligarchy. The people making the decisions, running the economy and government 
are the elites. It's a, a small group of elites who pass their wealth down to their children, who oftentimes maintain that oligarchical rule. Very rarely do you have someone that's upwardly socially mobile enough uh, in this country to join, you know, the oligarchy, to join the ruling class just through hard work and determination, because the people who have their wealth, you know, use it to accumulate more and more. I didn't consider the fact that a lot of these people are terribly old. And they're not really grooming predecessors like they used to. A lot of people, I think, that are children of these folks are more progressive than their parents, and they see the state of our country, and they don't want to continue on the same path. But I think there is some credit to the fact that we have a gerontocracy in the country. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's kind of a difficult conversation that I think we need to have about how to reform the system in terms of yeah. making sure that people who don't come from wealthy back backgrounds are able to serve in Congress. At the same time, you don't want, I think a lot of people would say like, no, I don't want Congress people to be paid more, right? Mm. Because they already don't do their jobs. Yeah. But at the same time, we have to consider that you're basically freezing out individuals who can't afford to rent an apartment in DC or who can't afford the cost of running a campaign. It's really prohibitively expensive for working class people to run for office. So I think as a package deal, we have to somehow get rid of all of the corruption, get rid of the ability for people like Nancy Pelosi to make absolute bank on insider trading and just have the, the minimum salary of a congressperson be a little bit higher and somehow get rid of the ability for them to trade in on all of this information that they're getting as they're serving. Right. And I think what you're proposing is not impossible. The idea that we could have one large bill or a series of small bills that address the corruption we have. Let's talk about campaign finance. Let's pass some legislation to regulate that. Let's pass some legislation to have a better system of elections in our country so that working people have a, a, a more fair chance. Let's do something about the insane distribution of wealth in this country. Let's pass a series of bills. The only problem with that is that that would take many hours of writing legislation. I'm not sure Dianne Feinstein could stay awake for it. <laughs> so we have this weird chicken or the egg situation of what's going to catalyze the change. Our current Congress is many incapable, many unwilling to make this change. So what, what's it going to take? Because I think the general public would agree with both of us what we just said about what's necessary to change how government works in our country, how our democracy functions. Our members of Congress are not up for the task. Are we going to have to call another constitutional convention? That would be an absolute mess. But I'm not sure what it's going to take to have this change. Clearly, something needs to change, even if it's just people realizing we have members of Congress that are so old and are in cognitive decline that they can't stay awake for the, the, the meeting they have where they have to cast votes, which is a very important part of their job, where there's cameras in the room. If anything, that's Dianne Feinstein at her very best. Yeah, exactly. She's been ginned up for that moment. She's got her shots or whatever she needs to get going. She's got her Gatorade. She should be in there performing, and she can't even do the bare minimum. And specifically with Feinstein, her issues have been going on before that shingles diagnosis. There was a San Francisco Chronicle article that came out years ago. It cited four anonymous senators, including three Democrats, so her colleagues mm. in the Senate, and a number of former staffers who said that she has been in cognitive decline for for quite some time. Her memory is especially bad. She forgets people. She can't fulfill her responsibilities in Congress. And then when she finally had the shingles diagnosis and was out for three months, it was then that the Democratic establishment wanted to replace her on the Judiciary Committee so that they could get judges passed. None of this would have been an issue if you had taken care of the problem when it first presented itself and told this woman to retire and get out of Dodge when she first started suffering 
her mental health decline. And instead they waited until it was suddenly an issue for their ability to confirm judges. And we have Nancy Pelosi's daughter, right, pushing Dianne Feinstein around in a wheelchair. That legacy of American politics in the Pelosi family has been there for some time. Pelosi's first job was working for the Democratic Party. Uh, her father was in politics deeply with the Democratic Party, and that's all she's ever known. And now her daughter pushing around Dianne Feinstein in a wheelchair just really paints the picture that Dianne Feinstein's role is to cast ballots, uh, cast her, her votes on the floor in line with the party. Yeah, Would she's that a rubber be, stamp. Exactly. Would it be different if someone else who was an establishment candidate was doing her job? Probably not. Like, the effect on American politics would be the same. That is concerning, uh, that that's the stronghold of, of two-party party politics in the country, that the Democratic establishment controls not only that district so much, but just our country and the people who vote with them so much. Members of Congress should be making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis based on the issue. They should be representing the people in their district, not just blindly voting in, in with the party. It's absolutely absurd uh, to consider that if someone else was voted into the seat, would things really be that different? Yeah, exactly. And that's precisely why Pelosi doesn't want Gavin Newsom to be able to appoint a successor for Dianne Feinstein, because she doesn't want a pro more progressive person in there that Gavin Newsom would apparently put in. And then there's this Mitch McConnell issue, right, where he yeah. suffered what appeared to be a mini stroke while giving a speech to reporters. He had this fall uh, mm -hmm. a while back at the former Trump Hotel, where he apparently hit his head quite hard and was in the hospital for a bit. Um, and at that time, the Spectator reported that the uh, colleagues of Mitch McConnell, the other Republicans in Senate leadership, were basically discussing a potential retirement. And Mitch McConnell's team pushed back so hard on that report, which was not even us saying he was going to retire. It was saying that his colleagues were concerned about it and were discussing an exit plan <laughs> and a replacement strategy. And they freaked out. They immediately sent Mitch McConnell back to the Senate so he could save face and appear to be walking around and lively. And then, lo and behold, there's this issue uh, during a press conference. Yeah, he didn't even acknowledge it happened. He was just like, I'm fine. It's like, ah, are you fine? Are you fine? Uh, I guess we'll find out. Uh, hopefully we, we hear more about what happened with Mitch McConnell because everyone's going to keep asking. You can't just have a situation like that happen and just I'm fine your way out of it. No, unacceptable. We'll be back with more Rising after this. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre snapped at a reporter who inquired about what the president would do with regards to Hunter Biden's potential charge. Here's the exchange from Thursday's press briefing. Let's watch. From a presidential perspective, is there any possibility that the president would end up pardoning his son? No. Really not going to say anything more than what I shared yesterday. This is a personal matter uh, for Hunter Biden. Uh, this is... Uh, you know, a personal issue. And uh, as you know, this has been done in an independent way uh, by the Department of Justice. It has been led by a Trump-appointed prosecutor. And I'm just not going to comment beyond, uh, beyond what I said uh, yesterday. And um, of course, and we have said this multiple times, the president and the first lady, they love their son. And they support, they support him as he is uh, working to rebuild his life. I'm just not going to say anything beyond that. Jean-Pierre said there that the president and the first lady love his son and are giving him space to work out his personal affairs.
Meanwhile, Hunter Biden's plea may be on hold, but the GOP isn't letting up. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett and a CNN anchor got into a bit of a tiff on air after he defended his party's ongoing inquiry. Here is that exchange. They're accusing uh, Biden, of, of, they accused Trump of doing what Biden actually did, $10 million of bribery, um, to, and they fired a guy. I mean, you can follow the money, ma'am. And these are FBI informants. These are FBI Right, but it has to be proven. There has to be some proof. You can't just say it happened. There has to be some proof, right? Well, what was the the dossier on Trump? There wasn't really any proof. It was all hearsay. And now here you've got an FBI document, an official document showing that. So, you know, we can sit here and argue about it, and I get it. You're, you know, you're, you've got your base. I've got mine, but I've seen. The I don't have a base. I'm a journalist. I don't have a base. Democrat I, I or Republican. I understand, ma'am. You work for CNN, but let's be honest. If you work for Fox, it'd be the right wing, and you all are the left wing. And I get We're it. Not, it's politics. I'm not. As usual, ma'am. You don't ma'am, know my politics, the, yeah, sir. You nobody, really don't know my nobody politics. Nobody believes that, ma'am. You can say that, and you can have your fingers crossed under. But again, the there has to be but, proof, sir. It's an interesting exchange between those two. Uh, you know, Tim Burchett's doing a lot of press, not only about this, uh, but about the, the alien investigation as well. He's got his, his hands full when it comes to media coverage. And I can see when members of Congress uh, are doing so many exchanges with the media, they get to a point where uh, they lose their their demeanor, right? We saw Lindsey Graham snap at that uh, journalist who was asking questions. Let me finish. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that, but he got, it got quite heated. But I think, you know, what's going on here is I think uh, members of Congress, especially in the Oversight Committee, have been pretty upset in their lack of ability to obtain evidence and investigate and, you know, having their hands tied by, you know, the, the establishment, basically, right? The FBI yeah. uh, preventing them from getting access to documents and making documents public. And then the Pentagon, when it comes to the UFO UAP hearing, say, no, we're not going to let you get briefed on this information. You can't disclose this. This can't be public. I think members of Congress are getting frustrated because they were elected to do a job and to serve in government. And they're being prevented from doing their job of serving in government by people in government who never had to run for public office. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There is a frustration that's sinking in. It's why Chuck Grassley released that FBI form showing the alleged bribery in the first place, because he was trying to put pressure on the powers that be to be more forthcoming with what they do have available. Initially, that document was said not to exist. Then they were told that members of Congress weren't even allowed to look at it. Uh, So there was this attempted cover-up of even them accessing this information in the first place. There's a new report out now that suggests that the Delaware attorney who was prosecuting Hunter Biden was told that there was some independent corroboration of that form, although we haven't been made aware of what exactly that information is. When I see that clip of Corinne Jean-Pierre saying that Biden won't pardon his son, I think two things immediately. One is, okay, yeah, sure. And then the second is, why would he have to? I mean, Mm -hmm. at this point, we've seen this sweetheart deal. That version now has fallen apart. But it seems clear to me that the DOJ, DOJ is trying to get the lightest possible Um, charges and then sentencing for Hunter Biden for these claims of failing to pay his taxes and also lying on this federal gun form. 
And I mean, the sweetheart deal, when we actually saw the details of it, were so horrendous that the judge could not abide. Um, the deal supposedly not only allowed Hunter Biden to avoid jail time by pleading guilty to the tax charges, and they would basically dismiss the federal gun charge, but it also exempted him from prosecution related to any of the facts in that case. What are the facts in this case? They consist of the fact that Hunter Biden served on the board of a Ukrainian energy company and a Chinese private equity fund. The facts say that he earned substantial income from domestic business interests and from China and Ukraine and, and Romania. So if those are the facts that you're not allowed to prosecute him on with, you know, with anything related to those issues, you've basically given him carte blanche exemption from any other uh, bribery allegation, anything related to FARA, you know, failing to register as a foreign agent. This is a huge deal that gave him tons of protection and insulation from other potential crimes that he could have committed. And the judge was like, you can't do this. <laughs> like, this is mm -hmm. so far reaching that it is obviously unconstitutional. And so now the deal is being reworked, apparently. They might go to trial. But the fact that that was even considered in the first place is absurd. Yeah, I think it's absolutely absurd. It was my understanding, and I think a lot of folks' understanding, that the agreement was you're going to plead guilty for these misdemeanor you know, tax crimes, and we're not going to charge you for having this illegal possession of a firearm. I thought that was the agreement when it came to no further prosecution as it pertains to that specific case. Right. And then it sounds like in the courtroom, they were like, no, like, in perpetuity, no, no prosecution for anything I've done, which is absurd. The judge was right to be like, what? Like, we don't do that. Yeah. That's crazy. And the judge was like, is there any precedent for this? And they were like, no, Your Honor. And it's like, obviously, this is an insane scenario. This couldn't have ever been the deal. I don't know what David Weiss was thinking as a prosecutor. I would love to know what the behind-the-scenes conversations were there. But if we take a step back and we think about you know, what Burchett could do, Let's look at, at the facts of the case, right? You have Hunter Biden on the board of Burisma. You have him getting paid, I think the figure is $83,000 a month. It's cut in half two months after Vice President Biden is out of office, Hunter Biden's father. We have heard of this transaction of money, $5 million to Biden, $5 million, uh, well, to Dad Biden and Hunter Biden, so $10 million total. There has to be a paper trail there, even if, even if there's not. The fact that there is a scenario where Biden, as vice president, could have said, I'm not giving a billion dollars to Ukraine unless they, they take down the prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, who was prosecuting Burisma at the time. Mikola Zlochevsky is rumored to have said that the reason Hunter Biden's on the board uh, is to make things easier for Burisma. What happens? Viktor Shokin is no longer the prosecutor. Burisma doesn't get prosecuted. I mean, just those details alone. You don't really need the paper trail for the $5 million to say, there's some very clear corruption happening at the highest level in the United States, or just that it's possible legally. Use your power as a legislator to impose a, a checks and balances on the executive branch, write some legislation that would have a further vetting process to prevent things like this from happening. Yeah, this is, there's incredibly strong circumstantial evidence as is. And Republicans are now talking about starting an impeachment inquiry, which would I guess, potentially give them more broad powers in order to investigate some of these allegations. And on your point about the deal, how we all thought it was just basically trading charges, yeah. 
That's what the DOJ intended for us to believe, because the judge apparently didn't even see the aspect of this deal, which is paragraph 15, that did exempt him from other prosecutions, other charges related to these facts in this case, until basically the day of the hearing. I mean, the judge says, I didn't get a copy of paragraph 15 of the agreement, but the parties provided me with a copy of that agreement prior to the hearing, so that's what I'm going to quote from. Why on earth? did the judge coincidentally receive every part of the plea deal except for paragraph 15 until right before, and it's because they were obviously trying to sneak it in. And the judge basically caught them with their pants down because he asked the DOJ, well, does this exempt Hunter Biden from, from FARA, from you know failing to register as a foreign agent type um, charges? And they said, well, no, actually, we could get him on that. And then, naturally, Hunter Biden's team, which believed that FARA was covered under this plea deal, threw up their hands and said, well, wait a second, that's not what we agreed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, everything about this is so shady. There's this ridiculous cover-up involved to try to keep the judge in the dark about the details of this plea deal. And I'm just fascinated to see where these hearings go from here, um, whether or not they end up going to a trial, um, because there's there's so much wrong mm-hmm. with everything the DOJ was trying to do here. I suspect that it probably wasn't David Weissman, I think that this was probably coming from higher up because I just don't see, as you said, how this guy who keeps changing his story on what uh, basically um, authority he had to bring charges in different states against Hunter Biden um, would have come up with this scheme all by himself. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, best case scenario, what comes out of this is honestly legislation in Congress. We can't do anything now. I know people really want Hunter Biden to do some time for, you know, his crimes. They want to see Hunter Biden do some jail time, it seems. They don't want him to have this kind of plea deal agreement where he avoids jail time for things that a lot of people go to prison for a very long time for. I think, you know, for me, we've always seen people in the highest public office in the United States do corrupt things and get away with it. I think the best way forward now is do your job as a congressman and write some legislation. I think it's very sexy to go and do hits and talk about Hunter Biden right now. And I think our members of Congress are acting a little bit like influencers trying to chase a viral moment and not so much like people who are, you know, governing the country. We definitely need to see more investigation. I'm a fan of legislation. I hope that if they do start this impeachment inquiry that they continue to to follow these threads that the House Oversight Committee has been pulling on because they've managed to uncover more in the past six months to a year than apparently the DOJ has for the past five to ten. So. Fingers crossed that we continue to get to the bottom of this. We'll yeah, be back yeah. with more Rising after this. More Perfect Union and KC tenants put out this video about tenant organizing currently going on in the country. Let's take a look from that clip from More Perfect Union. Over a third of Americans are renters. And if you're in that category, you probably don't need to be told that the rental market is out of control. The question is, can anything actually be done about it? A historic wave of tenant organizing, unlike anything we've seen in decades, has found one answer. National rent control. The tenant movement is absolutely within striking distance of rent regulation at the national level. But it's not just tenants who are organized. This is also a story about how some of America's biggest landlords, banks, and private equity firms are hiding behind innocent-sounding front groups, all while pooling their money to keep your rent high. 
The current surge in tenant organizing is the most significant since the 1970s, and it's allowing renters to fight for the kind of big relief that only the federal government can enact. For private equity firms like Blackstone, membership in lobbying groups is a way to protect their profits against threats like the current push for rent control. A more perfect union tweeted this week, national rent control is closer than you think. A historic wave of tenant organizing is on the verge of winning renter protections that would be attached to federal loans, affecting one in four apartments. But Graystar, Blackstone and Avalon Bay are spending millions to block it. Director of KC Tenants, Tara Rugavir, joins us now to discuss. Tara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So give us a, a status update on these protests that are taking place and the potential for these rent controls to be enacted. Yeah, so we are a few days out from the end of a comment period that the Federal Housing Finance Agency has opened responding to tenant organizing for the majority of the last two years. Tenants have pushed this agency to consider the ways that they need to use federally backed financing as leverage to hold the market uh, accountable to protecting tenants. And they've invited these comments from the industry. They've invited comments from tenants. We're closing in on 2000 comments from tenants in federally backed homes across the country. And the comment period closes on Monday. So after that, we have a few months to see what the FHFA will go on to do. And we are very optimistic that they will consider regulating our rents and also protecting tenants from evictions, bad conditions uh, in some of these units that are uh, financed by federally backed loans. So the latest estimate I have here of what median rent is in the country is $2,029. Now, I would say the rent is too damn high. A lot of people would say the rent is too damn high. Can you say some more about the commodification of housing and how we got into this situation where landlords have continued to raise rent and now it's so high that people are just one accident away from losing their homes? The rent is too damn high. It's a catastrophe, and it's one that's been enabled by the federal government. To the extent that the federal government has made any significant play in promoting housing supply, it's been through federally backed loans. But those loans have not come with any regulation. So landlords like Blackstone, like the CIM group, they get loans on lucrative terms. They go and acquire properties. They rent those properties out to tenants. But then those are also some of the same actors that hike rents in the most aggressive ways and also evict with no no, uh, with no regard for the tenant's stability or the tenant's lives. The federal government has basically allowed this to exist, and the market remains vastly unregulated. So I, I'm a, in agreement, I think, generally, that there should be less corporate ownership of private housing, and particularly there should be fewer corporate landlords. But most economists say that rent control is actually damaging to the housing market because it ultimately reduces supply. A Stanford study from 2019 of the San Francisco housing market found that while rent control helped current renters temporarily, it ended up increasing prices for future renters and also increased the gentrification in the areas where the rent control was enacted. So what is your response to that common criticism from economists? The common criticism from economists, and many of those economists are in bed with the profiteers who benefit from opposing the idea that rent control is good. Landlords are doing what we would consider rent gouging now. There was just a report out yesterday from the center, uh, the Consumer Financial 
Protection Bureau about rent inflation that identified this vast issue around rent gouging. And what I would say is this, it relates to what I was saying to Jessica, the federal government has already made a significant play on the supply side, and that's been through promoting liquidity in the secondary mortgage market through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans. The problem is, if we don't regulate that market that the federal government already has a stake in, we're hemorrhaging affordable housing supply at a rate that way outpaces our ability to produce new supply. And that preservation of supply is critically important at a time like this when the rent is too damn high. So you said, you know, we're in striking distance of rent control. Is a strike, a rent strike, you think, on the table when it comes to tenants organizing for lower rents? What do you think it's going to take organizing-wise to get landlords to the point where we do have rent control or we have reasonable rent in the country? Or is it going to be that we have to, you know, force this upon the federal government through good organizing? I think it's a combination of all of these things. We're organizing with tenant unions across the country. We've had dozens of tenant unions spring up just this summer as we've been organizing in federally backed properties. We've knocked tens of thousands of doors in those properties and pushed those tenants to submit comments, not just submit comments to FHFA, but also start meeting with their neighbors and really taking seriously the organizing potential of the tenant union. So I do think we're within striking distance of federal rent control, and we're not naive about what it's going to take us to actually get there. And ultimately, it might take a real disruption of the flow of capital to the profiteers who, who own our homes. And that might look like a rent strike. I think that's not something that's necessarily on the table today. We don't necessarily have the power to pull that off in the tenant movement, but it's certainly something that we're building the power to be able to execute when the moment calls for it. Are there other policies besides rent control that your organization is looking at, perhaps, for example, direct subsidies to current low-income renters? We're looking at other policies like eviction protections. Good cause eviction is something that we want to see as part of these eviction protections that we're asking of the FHFA. We're also looking at policies like social housing. The Homes Guarantee Campaign has been a leading proponent of social housing at the federal level since 2019. We're looking at tens of millions of units of social housing that we need across this country in order to disrupt the current nature of the market where these corporate landlords have consolidated the market such that they can price set and hold us all hostage to their demands. I think there's like an unfortunate narrative, I would say, in the country right now around uh, homelessness, right? People losing their, their houses. You're very close to this. You see a lot of this every day, people dealing with eviction. I think there's a, an unnecessary sort of uh, pejorative uh, framing of homelessness, that there are always people who are criminals, who are using drugs, et cetera. Can you just say more about how close the average working person in America is to losing their homes and, you know, just how you see folks that you organize with facing eviction? There's no county in this country where a two-bedroom uh, apartment is affordable to a worker who's working full-time, meaning most of us are paying over 30%, many of us paying over 50% of our incomes for the places that we live. That also means that one emergency, as you said before, a flat tire, a sick kid, is all that separates us from the precarity of eviction and the potential of homelessness. This is much, much closer to all of us 
than any of us really consider, I think, on a day-to-day -day basis. And you're right to say, I think there's a narrative that has a chokehold on um, our media, on our elected officials sometimes around what homelessness means and who becomes homeless. The, the, the truth is that so many people are on the brink of homelessness or are living homeless today, couch surfing in hotels, in short-term rentals, because they can't make anything else work. And we have to acknowledge the kind of uh, much larger, more nuanced story about homelessness that exists in the economy as it looks today. Thanks for joining us, Tara. We'll be back with more Rising after this. first-of-its-kind house hearing on unidentified anomalous phenomena, whistleblower David Grush blew open a discussion about interdimensional beings, touching on holographic theory. Let's listen. In terms of uh, multidimensionality, that kind of thing, the, the framework uh, that I'm familiar with, for example, is something called the holographic principle. Uh, both, uh, it's, It derives itself from general relativity and uh, quantum mechanics, and that is if you want to imagine a 3D object such as yourself casting a shadow onto a 2D surface, uh, that's the holographic principle. So you can be projected, quasi-projected from higher dimensional space to lower dimensional. It's a scientific trope that you can actually cross, literally, as far as I understand, but there's probably guys with PhDs that we could probably but, argue about that. But you have yeah. not seen any documentation that that's what's occurring. Uh, only a theoretical framework discussion. Yes. If any of that went over your head, professor of science at Harvard and author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, Dr. Avi Loeb, is joining us to break this down. Welcome, Dr. Loeb. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about what he's explaining there, the holographic theory, and how that might help us understand the technology that UAPs or UFOs are using? I don't think that's very relevant. The, the holographic principle uh, is a concept that considered in the context of string theory in a way of unifying quantum mechanics and gravity in the context of extra dimensions, meaning we know of three dimensions of space and of time, and string theory argues that in order to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, the two pillars of modern physics, they need to consider additional spatial dimensions. And then they have proven mathematically some equivalence between quantum field theory and gravity within those extra dimensions. That's, uh, first of all, not known to be a description of reality. String theory is a purely mathematical concept at the moment. We don't know whether there are extra dimensions. Uh, theoretical physicists talk about it for decades, but we have no clue whatsoever that there is any extra dimension beyond the three spatial dimensions we have. So mentioning that in the context of technology is completely inappropriate because we don't know whether uh, even there are extra dimensions and whether it applies to the reality that we all share. It's just a mathematical concept at this point within string theory, which is not proven by any means to be correct. There was no experimental evidence for string theory, and we don't see any prospect for getting experimental evidence in the coming decades. So the way I would think of it is just as a mathematical concept that has no relevance to technology, no relevance to the real world, and I'm just surprised that he even mentioned that. Yeah, and he did say that it was just a theoretical concept, but I also was kind of confused as to why it was brought up. I mean, based on your research, 
what is the best explanation of where these UAPs are coming from exactly, if not a different realm or different period of time? Well, we can, first of all, they're not moving at speeds that uh, cannot be explained by conventional physics. I mean, uh, they might be moving at the speeds and accelerations that exceed those attainable by our technology, but, you know, the, they don't move faster than light. They don't move at an acceleration that cannot be explained. And so uh, if there are functional devices near Earth that were constructed by some alien technological manufacturer, you know, they might have propulsion systems that are different than the ones we use. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't call for new physics in this context. The people that are talking about new physics often are not very familiar with old physics, the physics we know. So for them, talking about new physics is an easy thing. But if you look at modern physics, you know, over the past few decades, it was really difficult to find new principles, new laws of physics, new phenomena. Every time a nuance is found on what we already know, uh, it, it gets the Nobel Prize. And so, uh, and, and actually the recent Nobel Prizes were awarded for things that were known for decades. So it's just, non-professional for someone that doesn't know the physics we actually already know to talk about new physics and moreover you know if we don't have good data in in these cases of the Nimitz incident and of what uh, uh, you know the pilots are talking about the uh, Ryan Graves was talking about you know we don't have the data we don't have any physical evidence measurements that can allow us to assess uh, what they are actually what they are reporting about so talking about new physics is irresponsible under these circumstances in order to consider new physics we need exquisite data that we cannot explain with conventional physics and non-professionals just talk about it in a cavalier way just you know well maybe it's new physics but that's not the way science is done we need exquisite data from instruments not from eyewitnesses and we don't have that for these reports so, Dr. Loeb, with the existing physics that we have and have proven with many years of science, it seems to me that people are just inventing new physics to try and explain something other than perhaps aliens exist. What do you make of what's coming out in the hearing? Uh, do you find that there's merit in Grush's claims about UFOs and UAPs that have been obtained by the U.S. government, military and intelligence community, and that there are biologics, as Grush said? Yeah, so just think of yourself as a juror listening to witnesses in the courtroom. And the question is, would you believe him? Would you believe them? Now, they talk about experiences, the, you know, the pilots. We haven't had access to the actual data, so we cannot assess whether what they're talking about is just their personal impressions and how reliable these are, how unusual the phenomena that they saw were. And with respect to Grash, I would like to see someone who had first-hand experience of the evidence like saw the materials saw the the actual uh, um, you know spacecraft that he's talking about and talks about it he is talking about what other people told him 40 witnesses i don't care about how many people talked with him the issue is i want to hear someone who actually saw the materials or i want to see some footage or i want to get some information evidence that as a scientist i can analyze without that it's just hearsay now, of course, the important uh, development from this hearing is that he was willing to provide contacts, uh, information to representatives such that they would contact people with first-hand experience. And 
Presumably that could lead to the release of information. But until that information is released, until we see footage, until we actually see a spacecraft or materials that came from there, uh, we cannot assess whether it's real. It could be all fabricated. Right. And I understand at some point during the hearing, uh, some lawmakers went into a skiff with David Grush to apparently review some video evidence or get the names of these individuals that they could reach out to. Aside from whether or not Grush's claims are believable or or need more evidence attached to them, do you think it's a good sign in general that this hearing was had at all? And does this suggest that these lawmakers are taking the issue of UAP seriously? Definitely. I think the real meat is in the classified information. Okay, so we are not exposed to that. And perhaps some people who saw it initiated this process. And for us, it doesn't look as convincing as of now, but it would lead to some release of evidence and data. And, you know, as an astronomer, uh, uh, you know, it's, it looks completely reasonable to expect uh, the US government to be the first to notice something unusual because they monitor the sky during their day job um, for national security purposes and they would be the first to notice something unusual in our sky something crashing astronomers focus their telescopes on very distant sources of light they ignore anything cr very close to earth and so you know it's quite possible the u.s government has possession or information about the alien technologies uh, as a scientist you know the sky is not classified the oceans are not classified. So I'm seeking personally uh, evidence for what lies in interstellar space. We just came back a month ago uh, from an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to retrieve uh, materials from the first recognized interstellar meteor. That's an object bigger than half a meter that collided with Earth, uh, had an unusual material strength, and was moving faster than 95% of the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And we want to check whether it's uh, uh, technological in origin. We are currently analyzing the materials at Harvard University and trying to figure it out. Thank you, Dr. Avi Loeb, for breaking this down with us. I think this is on a lot of people's minds right now, given the congressional hearing. Looking forward to follow up. Thank you. Prosecutors have dropped the charge against ex-FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried that he violated campaign finance rules, according to The New York Times. Bankman-Fried was charged with fraud and campaign violations in December after his crypto company caved in. The prosecutor's filing said, quote, in keeping with its treaty obligations to the Bahamas, the government does not intend to proceed to trial on the campaign contributions count. According to authorities, Bankman Freed and other FTX employees used customers' deposits to make $90 million in campaign contributions to approximately 300 political candidates or PACs. Journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, Congrats to Sam Bankman-Fried, the Democratic Party's second largest donor behind George Soros, on having his campaign finance fraud charges dropped by the Biden DOJ. Their hilarious claim is that they just couldn't proceed because the big, powerful Bahamas wouldn't let them. Crazy situation. Um, yeah, Bankman-Fried is not this kind of guy uh, to be compared with George Soros in the sense that he just wants Democrats to win. 
his campaign contributions is, you know, just him trying to convince Democrats who are most likely to pursue financial regulations on the trade of cryptocurrency. He's trying to convince them not to regulate cryptocurrency. That's why he's made so many campaign donations. And it worked. It was a strategy that absolutely worked. We had so many bills pass. Uh, a, a bill, the Stablecoin Act, you know, written by Rowan Gray, who's someone who's very knowledgeable about cryptocurrency, financial institutions, and the legality of how our money system works, introduced the bill with Rashida Tlaib's office that would have literally prevented the crash that happened in May that ironically would have also prevented the decline of FTX uh, that happened. It was sort of a, a slow burn that led to their ultimate collapse in November. And so the exact regulations that he lobbied against would have prevented his company from failing as bad as it did. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't think we should see this as like Sam Bankman-Fried loved Republican or loved Democrats so much and that's why he donated to their campaigns. He was literally paying them not to pass regulations that I think would have not only, you know, prevented the collapse of his company but would have prevented a lot of people from losing money that they couldn't afford to lose by investing in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there was a video of him sort of talking about woke and and that ideology and saying, essentially, it's a convenient way to get the government off of my back if I support this uh, this party line. And uh, like you said, apparently it worked. He gave $90 million in campaign contributions to some 300 political candidates or political action committees. And it's actually, you know, functionally not different from what he did with the company as a whole. As he's using this customer money to pay off politicians, mm -hmm. he was also using customer money to secure loans for his business and to reinvest money into the business. It was basically all a giant scam. And I'm with Glenn Greenwald. We really can't get the Bahamas to turn over Sam Bankman freed. I, it's such a ridiculous excuse. Yeah. Now, it does look like they're going to continue to pursue the fraud charges related to the financial aspect of the mm -hmm. company outside of the political domain donations. Yeah. But I, I think, to me, it seems like the reason they're not going after the uh, political donations is because there's a bunch of politicians in PACs who don't want to have to pay the money back. Right. I think uh, Bankman Freed's should be found guilty of the fraud uh, allegations because it happened in, in broad daylight. We all know what he did. It's not like this is something where they have to do a ton of investigating to find the evidence. Uh, it's all pretty well documented. It's all public. We know that when we had, you know, the, the fall of cryptocurrency values uh, in the spring in May, you know, that was the result of large transactions happening where, you know, the amount of money that was injected into the crypto market allowed the stable coins, which were supposed to, you know, keep a one-to-one exchange with the dollar fell below the value of a dollar, people freaked out uh, because people like exchanging their dollars from, you know, Bitcoin or FTT or Ethereum, whatever coins they're trading, which only have their value thanks to people speculating that they have value. So the more people buy them, the more they go up in value. They want to be able to account for that instability and be able to say, OK, you know, Bitcoin's up right now. I'm going to pull my money out of this. They don't want to have to go through this transaction of, OK, I have to sell the Bitcoin. Now I have dollars. Now I need to, you know, take the money out of the crypto market and put it back in, they created stable coins so people could more easily execute these transactions. But 
uh, obviously this isn't regulated by the typical kinds of financial regulations we have for banks that are usually responsible for backing up deposits. This was acting uh, like, a, like a structure for deposits. Uh, and when you don't have FDIC insurance, when you don't have those deposits backed up, that's very risky. So people freaked out. They pulled their money out of crypto. And Bankman Freed, who had his hedge fund by a ton of FTT tokens, the coin that was native to FTX, people were like, what's going on? Because he was giving people loans who had lost money in the collapse uh, throughout the summer and the spring. So the fraud just played out in broad daylight. Is it technically fraud because there wasn't so much uh, regulation of the crypto market? Yeah, absolutely it's fraud. It's akin to a kind of a Ponzi scheme to get yeah. people to invest in this. Also to, to have a hedge fund investing in your crypto token, that's insane. Absolutely insane. It is insane. Um, on this political uh, donation front, it looks like Bankman-Fried gave more than $40 million to Democrats and liberal causes in the, just the 2022 election cycle, including $6 million to the House Majority PAC, $250,000 to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and $66,500 to the Senatorial Campaign Committee. And there have been two senators who have promised to pay back the money, barring any uh, finding that he was guilty of this fraud. And and they are Debbie Stabenow, a uh, Michigan senator, and Maggie Hassan, who is from New Hampshire. And stunningly, even though they said back in December and January that they would give the money back, apparently no payments have been made. And so I think all of these people are just going to try to hang on to that cash as long as they can. They don't care that it was given to them fraudulently. And it's really disgusting because this is money that came from customers, from, mm -hmm. from investors, and a lot of whom were not wealthy people. They saw the ability to invest in crypto as sort of a way to get rich quick or maybe pad some income, um, you know, whatever disposable income they had, they were putting it in crypto because they thought that they could get around the traditional investment market. And that level of volatility that you were talking about is really attractive for some investors mm -hmm. because it's usually a quicker way to have the whole buy low, sell high um, cyclical nature of an investment. And these people deserve to have their money back. It was essentially stolen from them in the collapse um, because Sam Bankman-Fried used it so willingly in fraudulent ways. And I think that outside of Sam Bankman-Fried being found guilty on this, anyone who took these campaign donations has a responsibility to give it back to the customers who lost tons of money in this scheme. I think that's a really good point. It's an interesting model for accountability for members of, of Congress who are supposed to be representing the interests of the average American. That's the type of person that has been tricked to invest in cryptocurrency that's extremely volatile. A bunch of very wealthy people got richer off of cryptocurrency while the average person was sold a dream. Right. That like you can get rich really quick. You know, Dogecoin's going to the moon, invest in cryptocurrency, and a bunch of people did. And it was extremely unstable. It was not regulated in any way. Uh, and it should have been. And it was their job to regulate it. And they were paid not to. And so Sam Bankman-Fried was doing what a lot of, you know, lobbyists do, what a lot of people who have a particular agenda and would very much not like to be regulated by the government do, is you, you donate money to the political campaigns of members of Congress.
Maybe members of Congress should be found guilty. If we can't get Sam Bankman freed, maybe it's time we, we actually look into what were those conversations like? Was it the type of situation where they're like, you know, I, I think the, the crypto market's actually good for the economy and we should keep it free and not regulate it at all. And they're like, that sounds great. I think I'll vote for you and give your campaign money. Or was it Sam Bankman freed like, please don't regulate me, here is money. How much money do you need to not pass regulation on this? Like. I'm sure there's some record of how those conversations went down. Yeah, I would hope so. And according to the Washington Free Beacon, some of the lawmakers said that they would forward the campaign contributions to charity. Some gave them back to Bankman Freed, while others said they would wait for federal prosecutors to tell them what to do. And federal prosecutors said that they should turn over the donations to a government victim relief fund. Mm -hmm. But Senator Kristen Gillibrand from New York, this is what she said in response to the $5,800 that, well, she gave 5800 of it to charity, but she also said that she no longer has an additional $10,800 contribution. Well, lady, you better find it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, Gillibrand is someone that's kept her seat for some time. Uh, she ran for, you know, president. She's She's got money somewhere. Just because oh, you sure. don't have those $10,000, find $10,000 somewhere. Make people whole again. I mean, it's your job as a public figure to be held accountable when you do things like this. Uh, and just to keep the money would be absolutely insane. But also, Gillibrand's not a particularly fiery figure. She doesn't find herself uh, taking heat a lot. She has this vibe of, like, I'm Kirsten Gillibrand, and I'm just kind of a nice person. And I would do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the vibe she gives off. She's like, I don't know where the money went. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's the reasonable solution for restorative justice here. And maybe they should pass some regulations as well, give the money back, and actually uh, do the thing you were paid not to do. And when we look at the analogous situation for what would happen if an everyday American were involved in this, like let's say someone steals goods from a big box store mm-hmm. and then resells them to somebody, the person who got sold the stolen good doesn't get to keep it when they find that paper trail, right? They have to give it back, even though they're out the money that they paid for the good. Uh, So I have no sympathy for these Democrats who are hanging on to these campaign donations under the guise of them not having money. It's such a joke. Yeah, exactly. What about the, the everyday people that lost money thanks to this operation? pale in comparison to the amount of money they got in donations from Sam Bickman. And they don't get a convenient, you know, $40,000 speaker fee to go talk to Harvard or or these other ridiculous uh, pay-for-play schemes that these congressional uh, members get to enjoy both Mm -hmm. during and after their career. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Grande has said thank you next to her husband and is now dating co-star Ethan Slater. Uh, On the set of Wicked, these two met. Reportedly, Ariana was separated from her husband Dalton at the time that they met and rumored Ethan Slater had been separated from his wife, Lily uh, J. They had welcomed a child in August of 2022. It is a messy situation that Amber and I are following very closely and I think many other people as well. Ariana Grande, uh, you know, has been rumored to not be a girl's girl. I don't think that's so much a rumor. She has a song that goes, break up with your girlfriend because I'm bored. 
doesn't sound like a girl's girl to me. And that's exactly what Ethan Slater's, you know, wife said. They've now filed for divorce. Divorce is a lengthy process. Many states have like this separation period where you have to be apart, living in separate residences for sometimes like up to six months. Divorce in the state of New York can take 9.5 to 11 months on average, this says. Uh, it's, it's a state where even when you both parties agree on the divorce, it takes three months for papers to be filed with the court. So it's a lengthy process, but it sounds like that's not really what was going on. That's not yeah. really why they weren't legally divorced. It was because, you know, Ethan Slater's wife apparently thought they were still working on things. Exactly. And I always say to women, don't get involved with a man, even if he's in the process of getting a divorce, because you don't know the terms of their relationship. You only are hearing one side of the story. It's best to wait until the dust has settled. I mean, even just given the fact that divorces are a messy and lengthy process, um, you shouldn't be with someone whose attention is, is elsewhere and who is trying to figure out how to separate from someone, especially when there's children involved. This situation is especially gross because Ariana Grande was apparently friends with this couple prior to when her and Ethan Slater started dating. So she was going out to dinner with them. She had met and even held their baby and yet was fooling around with this guy. Um, and there's some speculation as to whether or not they were even separated when Ariana Grande started seeing this guy. She reportedly had been having problems with her own husband since January, but I think most importantly, this appears to be a pattern of behavior for Ariana Grande. She has been linked with numerous guys who have been in other relationships around the same time as her starting to talk with them. Same situation with Pete Davidson. He was dating Larry David's daughter, Cassie. She said she was shocked that they were dating so quickly after they were apparently on a break, not even a full separation. She got with Mac Miller when Mac Miller was with another woman or had just broken up with her. So time and time again, she mm -hmm. seems to be sort of swooping in to these other relationships to try to blow them up. And I'm hearing some chatter that, oh, well, the guy's to blame. Yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. Anybody who cheats, I think, is, is a disgraceful person. But as a woman, I think you should have respect enough for your fellow woman that if this it, man is in a relationship with somebody else, you would decline to get involved in that situation until there is an official breakup. I mean, that's, and not just respect for a fellow woman, but respect for human beings in general, mm -hmm. that you would not want to be involved in a home wrecking process. And yet continually she has done this over and over again. I think it speaks to a real lack of character and judgment. Yeah. It's, it's, it honestly makes me sick to think about all of the young girls who follow Ariana Grande, who have loved her since she was a, a, a kid on Disney, and they're looking up to her and thinking, maybe this is behavior that's okay, maybe this is something they should go on and do one day. And I understand that women are treated very differently in the press when things like this happen. When a, a, a guy is caught cheating or home wrecking or whatever, they don't really get talked about as much. There's a reason I think it's important to talk about this case of Ariana Grande, because as women, when we have this problem where for a period of time we were not allowed to vote, we were not allowed to have bank accounts, there was a, a very unequal relationship in society between men and women, that allowed men to treat women pretty poorly because we had, you know, no way to get a bank account if not through our husband, right? We were treated kind of like property. We're still fighting a lot of those things. Uh, we're still trying to have more equal footing uh, in the workplace, but also at home and in, in relationships. And so, Men treating women poorly and cheating on them and maybe, you know, starting to talk to a new girl while they have a girlfriend, 
I think it's an act of resistance to be an honest woman and to be a girl's girl. That's what being a girl's girl is about. It's important for feminism. It's important for fighting for equality. And when we have people like Ariana Grande, who a lot of young girls look up to acting like this, you know, it really, it doesn't do much for the movement. It's not good for women. That's why I don't like it. That's why I think it's important to talk about. Yeah, and I remember there was a similar conversation that took place back when Maroon 5 frontman Adam Levine was cheating mm. on his wife. And this woman, Sumner Stroh, came out with the text messages and blew up Adam Levine's spot, basically, which is okay, I guess. I wish she had done it privately with um, Adam Levine's wife, Bahati Prinsloo, first, because she didn't really give her the opportunity to process the information before it was all over the media. Mm -hmm. um, but Sumner Stroh basically played the victim in this situation, claiming she was manipulated. And it's like, yeah, Adam Levine is a scumbag, no question. Yeah. But also, like, have some respect for yourself, have some respect for someone else's relationship, have some respect respect for Bahati Prinsloo. Like you were mm -hmm. just as much a willing participant in this affair as the man was. And so I just think both parties deserve responsibility in situations like these. And again, a woman uh, who is seeking empowerment um, or trying to be feminist should have enough respect for themselves mm. to not be someone's side piece, someone's second choice, someone that is kept a secret, right? You should be in a relationship where the man is proud of you, where you are his only option, where you are treating each other with respect and honesty and trust, not, uh, not sneaking around undercover mm -hmm. because you don't want the wife to find out. I, I just can't get over how gross it is for mm -hmm. anyone involved in these situations, both genders, uh, it's despicable. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, when you have someone like Ariana Grande, or Grande, Grande, who so many girls look up to doing this kind of thing, and then it's this guy that's SpongeBob. It's also like, really? Yeah, for him, I'm sorry. <laughs> but when you look at all of her exes and then you look at SpongeBob, I wanna know what this guy's all about. What does she see in him? Is he funny? Why SpongeBob? Well, and here's the thing. This is why I think it's some kind of pathology or character defect specifically with Ariana Grande. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. this is clearly not a case of like, oh, this particular Dreamy guy, man. he's just so perfect, oh. I can't help myself. It's like one guy after another, and then it's the SpongeBob guy. It's like, okay, clearly you just have a thing for guys who are taken. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's SpongeBob guy with a wife and a kid and you went to dinner with them, you held the baby or lunch or whatever, and then you liked Instagram photos mm. of them as a couple. And they've been together for 10 years. That is so weird to me. It's weird behavior. It's not just like infidelity and cheating, right? I'm sure Sumner, whatever, was obsessed with Adam Levine, thought he was the coolest, thought he was great. She could have just Googled him to figure out what was going on there. I think you know what's up. You can't play innocent. You can't play the victim in this situation. I think you're right that something weird goes on with people where they need to, I don't know, get involved in other people's relationship and, and, and do that. Is It can't be the case that she genuinely loved these guys no. every single time. And it was true love and it was meant to be. And that's why they had to break up and these two had to get together. Can't be. It's a pattern of behavior at this point. Here's what I think is going on in the female brain with women like Ariana yeah. Grande who have this pattern of behavior. They see what looks like a healthy, happy relationship. And instead of saying, I want something like that for myself, they say, I want that relationship. 
that guy's clearly a keeper because he's been with this woman for 10 years. They have a baby. This particular guy has something that I'm seeking because he's able to have this, this healthy, long-term, normal relationship. Like a normal person would look at that and say, wow, I, I really hope I get that someday. I'm going to try mm -hmm. to date a guy with those same values so that I can experience this relationship. Ariana just cuts straight to the source. She's like, nope, I want this specific one. This is now mine. Ariana Grande is a cancer. I'm looking up her astrological <laughs> sign. I'm, I'm searching I thought you for meant answers. She, she is a Why cancer, is she as like in this? like... Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. In the community of women. Uh, yes, <laughs> she's a cancer. Hmm. Very interesting. I don't know much about the astrological signs. Can you clue me in? Do you know what your sign the, is? Yeah, I'm a Gemini. You're a Gemini. Okay, interesting. No, a cancer, very emotional, driven by emotion. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, that kind of fits. Yeah. yeah, it does fit. Yeah. She's a very emotional gal. Yeah. Well... I hope SpongeBob is who she settles with, but I'm not sure SpongeBob will be who she settles with. And, you know, she might continue to be a cancer and go on and say thank you next to the next person. Well, you know what they say, if they will cheat with you, they will cheat on you. <sighs> the, the community of women is in crisis. Uh, we'll continue to report on the matter. <laughs> More <laughs> rising after this. South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace is catching heat for a rather risque joke she cracked while speaking at a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. Let's watch. this together, another year, another standing room only event. And when I woke up this morning at 7, I, I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiance, tried to pull me by my waist over this morning in bed. And I was like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. Uh, I got to get to the prayer breakfast. And I got to be on time. And a little TMI. But um, I, he'll, he can wait. He's got, we got, I'll see him later tonight. Um, but I was here early. Pulling this together another year. Representative Mace responded to a tweet criticizing her comments, writing, My fiancé is not upset, but he did suggest I go to church twice this Sunday. See y'all at the 8.30 and the 11.30. So, yeah, I don't think people were uncomfortable about this uh, because she was a Christian. I think people were uncomfortable about this because it's weird. It's weird to talk it's about cringe. that. It's cringe. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear about no. a, a congresswoman's sex life. Uh, but also... Read the room, right? I mean, you are at a prayer <laughs> breakfast. Um, this is technically a sin. Well, not technically. It is a sin mm -hmm. um, by the standards of, of the church to uh, to have sexual relations with your fiancé outside of marriage. Yeah. And so to just, like, flaunt that, the fact that you're sinning in front of your pastor and all of these people who are there that are Christians just seems, like, so ignorant and just kind of disrespectful to the people who take their faith really seriously. And I just, I don't understand what the heck she was thinking. And then to go and dismiss it as no big deal afterwards was just, like, another slap in the face for these people who are sitting there, like, I'm here to try to hear about how you are, you know, living out your mm -hmm. Christian principles, not to hear about you having sex with your fiance. Yeah. Yeah. The way she was like, don't worry, he can wait. We're not worried about him. Right. <laughs> We're worried that you just forced us to imagine this scenario and, and push this upon us. And then later she's like, don't worry, everyone. My fiance is not mad. I'm just going to go to church twice. 
Again, we are not concerned about your fiance, Nancy Mace. She just must love him very much. Any excuse to talk about him. But I think there's something more going on with Nancy Mace because in the UFO UAP hearing, she was asking a line of questions and like had this piece of paper with like clearly the questions that were mm -hmm. planned out for her to ask. She asks one question. David Grush says, uh, you know, I can't speak on that. And then she's like, she starts reading the next question. And she goes, oh, well, actually, I can't ask about that one based on your last answer. Hang on one second. I guess we can't ask that. And it's like, why are you reading your script to everyone in the room and saying, well, I can't ask the next question in my script. Just move on. Just move on. She says a little bit too much information we don't need to hear. And so I think it might be a pattern for her, but it, it's kind of funny to watch. Yeah, she uh, does have a history of doing this kind of thing. And um, to be fair, I don't really know why she was necessarily invited to speak at this prayer breakfast in the first place, because I'm pretty sure that she's at least somewhat pro-abortion, mm -hmm. which is also something that's very offensive to the people in that room who are mostly evangelical Christians. So it's just like a weird choice for her to be chosen to speak. And she did say in a, in a follow-up tweet, here's the full speech from Wednesday's prayer breakfast. My speech was actually about a very vulnerable time in my life. And I shed a few tears telling the story about how the church changed my life. And I think that's great. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to hear testimony from people like that. But at the same time, like what this joke revealed is that she is actively sinning and has no plans to stop. And she talks about how she, you know, goes to church because she's a sinner. And that's a hundred percent true. Like we go to church because we're sinners, because we need the grace of God and of Jesus Christ. But there's also some, uh, theological, like, like obvious theological, uh, problems with saying that, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not sorry for my sin and I plan to keep doing it. That is problematic. Like that doesn't absolve you from the sin in the first place. Like going to church twice doesn't absolve you. If you plan on having your fiance wake up and pull your waist over and have sex with you the morning before church, like that's just not how it works. So I think there's mm -hmm. just like a disconnect of, of her not really understanding like why this was an issue for the people who were there. I did never understand that about Christianity. Uh, well, I guess it's more cat Catholic, right? You go to confession uh, in the Catholic religion, and you, you tell them your sins, and then you do some Hail Marys, and then you're absolved. Uh, I also understand that Jesus died for people's sins. Jesus didn't die for nothing. People are going to sin. Uh, I don't understand how any of that works. But to do this in front of people to say, I'm doing the thing that you all think is terribly bad, that are, you know, Jesus, the very important guy in our religion, the, the son of God, and all of that. He died for this. He's our savior. He's our guy. And you're bragging to us that you're doing the thing that our whole religion is founded upon, right? Like, you're going to be a good person. You're going to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. You're not going to have sex before marriage. To say that at a prayer breakfast in front of a room of people, uh, even if you're not a lifelong Christian, I know not to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so why would you do it? Was it intentional for a viral moment? I think so because of the way she said it. The way she said uh, that, that line at the end, like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. That is not her way of speaking. She doesn't talk like that. No. Uh, that was weird. That yeah. was performative. It was a, a joke. So to go out of your way to do something performative and make this joke at a place where it's terribly inappropriate and goes against everything these people believe, what an insane situation from Nancy. Yeah. And to your point about, you know, confession in the Catholic church and then avoiding sin in, in other, uh, Christian, uh, Christian denominations, there has to be 
in order for you to be absolved, you have to mm -hmm. plan on not doing the sin again. Yeah. And you have to have, um, you know, the, the mental wherewithal to believe that what you did was bad. You have to be contrite. It's not just a matter of like saying the right thing or doing the right prayers and you're absolved. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this is such a problem is that she is basically boasting about the fact that she is going to continue to do the thing that she wants absolution for. And that's just like not how it works. I mean, and that would be mm -hmm. in any situation outside of religion, right? Where if you say you're sorry for something, but you don't really mean it and you plan on doing it again, are you really sorry? Like just on a, mm -hmm. a human, you know, personal to personal relationship too, right? Like if someone said, Hey, you really hurt me with this thing that you did. And you were like, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. But then you continued to do it and knew that you were going to continue to do it. Like your sorry didn't really mean anything. So that's why people are taking issue with this at this prayer breakfast. And I think you're right that this was probably planned. This was a planned joke. Mm -hmm. And outside of the sex thing, which is, a, as she said, TMI, like, hello, lady, you said it yourself. Nobody wants to hear about this. She also jokes about how she was going to be late to the breakfast and how she was like rushing to get ready on time because she had to wake up at 7 a.m., which is apparently super early for her. As a congresswoman, like that also rubs me the wrong way. You can't wake up like before 9 a.m. to go and do your job. You have to be rushing to get ready on time. Like you're not arriving 15 minutes early to things that are apparently very important to you. And you're about to give this emotional speech. It just doesn't make any sense to me. She seems sort of like haphazardly mm -hmm. thrown together. I mean, with your point about her reading those questions off of the UFO sheet during that hearing, like get your stuff together, Nancy. I mean, this is a serious position. I'm all for Congress people making jokes occasionally and trying to lighten up situations, mm -hmm. but it does seem like a recurring pattern that she's just this like disheveled person running from meeting to meeting and, and never really takes seriously what's going on. Right. And even not from the perspective of you're sinning, you're bragging about it. And I'm sure everyone who is Christian feels the same way you do about that. As just a person in a social setting, when you are speaking to a room of people, why are you talking about having yeah. sex in the morning? It is so irrelevant. It is so weird that she did it. That is what I can't get over, is the fact that you felt the need to tell a room of people that you almost got intimate this morning and that is why you were almost made late. How did she get elected to Congress if this is how she acts in public? I can't imagine what she said on the campaign trail while she was stumping. Also, uh, I was kind of just noticing that she's a bit older and she said fiance. She is also divorced. So she was yes. married from 2004 to 2019, uh, which is also something Christians don't feel particularly good about. But just right. weird. Very clumsy from Nancy. Very Naughty clumsy. Nancy. It's, I think about like a somewhat analogous situation, you know, in my personal life with people I'm close to, sometimes I curse. Yeah. If I were ever giving a speech in public or was on television, I wouldn't curse mm -hmm. because I'm trying to be respectful to the people that I am talking yeah. to. I'm trying to be respectful of the audience. And so this whole scenario to me just indicates a complete lack of respect for the people who were there. Yeah. It was kind of giving like, hello, fellow kids. And yeah. it was actually a room of like probably older Christian people. 60 year old money to donate to Tim Scott. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Literally. Well, that does it for us this week on Rising. Robbie and Brianna will be back next week, Monday through Thursday. And Amber and I will see you guys right here next Friday. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye, we'll see you next Friday.